listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. And I'm Molly Ruth, producer for the podcast. In this first season of Superpower Curiosity, we're exploring divisiveness and, importantly, how we can overcome it. This is also the subject of Richard's latest book, It's a Frickin' Mess, How to Thrive in Divisive Times. In this episode, Richard focuses on handling others' anger brilliantly, excerpted from It's a Freakin' Mess. Let's jump right in. Handle Others' Anger Brilliantly In any person-to-person confrontation, it is perhaps astonishing that as soon as we drop our own anger, the anger of the other side usually diminishes. This is because of a truth that pretty well everyone has experienced. Anger leads to anger back. Judgment leads to judgment back. And these cycles easily escalate. Conversely, when there is a genuine absence of angry reaction, the anger of the other tends to subside. On an emotional level, there's nothing to hit back at. On a larger social scale, the same is true. Anger and judgment on one side create anger and judgment on the other side in a vicious cycle of escalating divisiveness. It's difficult for most of us to break out of such a situation because our anger always seems, at least to us, warranted by what the other side did. Martin Luther King was a master at interrupting the vicious cycle of anger that he encountered in the 1950s and 60s. African Americans had a lot to be angry about. For example, the denial of equal rights, segregation written into law, hate based on prejudice, the Ku Klux Klan, and 80 years of lynchings. But despite all this, King and those who marched with him disciplined themselves to show no anger or violence. The result was that most of the violence was perpetrated by their white-skinned oppressors. In 1963, Theophilus Eugene Ball Connor, the Commissioner of Public Safety in Birmingham, Alabama, infamously ordered dogs and fire hoses to be turned on children who were demonstrating peacefully for equal rights. When the American public saw television scenes of African-American children being attacked by dogs and knocked down and swept away by the powerful water jets from fire hoses, many were appalled. It was clearly the white-skinned people who were manifesting uncivilized violence. The contrast between the peaceful demonstrators and the violence of those trying to stop them had a powerful effect. President Kennedy once commented wryly to King, The civil rights movement owes Bull Connor as much as it owes Abraham Lincoln. But Bull Connor's order for violence was ultimately beneficial for the civil rights movement only because Martin Luther King and company refused to play the game of retaliation. There had been hundreds of Bull Connor actor-likes since the end of slavery in the U.S., but a majority of Americans had excused or turned a blind eye to these violent discriminatory actions because they held the extreme otherizing view that African Americans were morally inferior beings. King and his followers brilliantly turned this belief on its head by demonstrating that the nonviolent African Americans 
acted with clear moral superiority compared to the violent, white-skinned suppressors of equality. Everyone could see this on television. Though this was not the end of racial prejudice, things could never be quite the same again. Refusing to show anger was a brilliant tactic, quite apart from its moral lessons, because it was this that truly began to break the age-old cycle of anger creating further anger, judgment creating judgment, hatred creating more hatred. And though it did not end prejudice thinking, it was highly effective, leading to major changes in US law, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Despite the documented success of such methods, King and Mahatma Gandhi's nonviolent movements are standout examples, the temptation to retaliate against insult is so immediate and feels so right that we often go ahead without considering the consequences. We might be aware intellectually that it's not generally a good idea to escalate the anger coming at us, but then, in the heat of the moment, the intellect is somehow bypassed by our adrenalized reaction. Have you ever written an email in reaction to an insult, thought you were being pretty cool and reasonable, and then a few days later, when you actually were cool and reasonable, reread what you wrote and realized how hot your reply really was? The temptation to respond to perceived anger in kind, but not in kindness, happens in all sorts of situations, in personal relationships, for instance, spousal retaliation escalating into spousal war, in work situations, in political situations. In US party politics, the emotional tit-for-tat has escalated into derision so deeply felt that real bipartisan conversation between politicians and even between voters has become very difficult. So what do you do when there is anger or insult coming at you, whether it's in person, on the phone, or via the news? If you wish to avoid your own angry reaction, consider these three levels to handling another's anger. 1. Pause. Avoid expressing your own immediate angry reaction, which prevents the mutual escalation of anger in that moment. You may or may not decide to give your response when the adrenaline surge has ebbed away. 2. Diffuse your own anger. And 3. Find empathy by understanding why the other is angry. Let's look at these in more detail. Level 1. Pause. Avoid expressing your angry reaction immediately. This rule of thumb is often recommended, but not always so easy to follow when communications are hot. Pausing is useful when you are in the presence of an angry person or people, and also when you encounter anger in writing or on social media. Here are some specific thoughts about each of these two situations. When you are in the presence of an angry person or people, pause. Don't speak. Take a deep breath. Your deep breath should be quiet, private. I've seen someone take a deep breath in a hot situation and then exhale with the sibilant sound of a hissing snake. This did not reduce the other person's anger. Taking a deep breath interrupts our automatic, adrenaline-driven fight-flight reaction. 
One of the physiological mechanisms of this useful means of self-management is that a deep breath stimulates the vagus nerve, which slows down the speeding heart. Many people owe their lives to this simple manoeuvre of pausing. The evidence for this is in the number of people who didn't pause and are now dead. In the US, the most common reason for homicide is to finish an argument, with a rather high degree of finality, about who is right and who is wrong. Arguments about who is right and who is wrong account for some 30% of murders in the US, and this motive for murder is more common than any other. For instance, murders committed in the pursuit of theft, rape, or narcotics-related crime. When you encounter anger in writing or on social media, pause. Don't write an angry email or text, or if you do write it, don't send it. Don't promulgate anything insulting on social media. Remind yourself that your intelligence is severely diminished when you are angry or upset. The adrenaline response actually shuts down neurons in your intelligent forebrain, making rational thought difficult or impossible. Pausing does not mean you won't take action. It means that whatever action you take will come after a period of cooling off, which gives a chance for the neurons in your forebrain to reconnect. Level 2 diffuse your own angry reaction. After you have succeeded in not escalating the anger through avoiding the immediate expression of your own anger, the next task is to diffuse your anger. To do this, you can follow the exercise Overcoming Anger in Chapter 7, the last chapter. As soon as you can fully recognize that your anger is internally caused through the frustration of your own expectations, and you can acknowledge your own needs, your blame of the other person or people disappears. And the anger, which is basically a physiological protective mechanism against an enemy, disappears in proportion to the diminishing blame. Level 3. Find empathy by understanding why the other is angry. The third level is to look for the cause of the anger in the other person or people. It's not that we will definitely find the cause of their anger, but in even attempting this exploration and making a reasonable guess, we can usually find the beginnings of empathy in ourselves. In 1996, I attended a week-long workshop with Dr. Marshall Rosenberg. Rosenberg was a psychologist, the founder of Nonviolent Communication, NVC, and a traveling peacemaker. Brought up in the 1940s in Detroit, Michigan, Rosenberg as a young boy witnessed race wars in which many were killed, and he himself was frequently beaten up on his way to school for having inherited a Jewish surname. These experiences, he said, catalyzed his quest to try to understand judgment, violence, and compassion. Over the years, he created a system of communication designed to bypass judgment and create empathy. He taught the system in more than 40 different countries, including war-torn regions of the world like the Middle East, Croatia, Serbia, Ireland, Rwanda, and Burundi. When I met Rosenberg, he was in his 70s, tall with a chiseled face, grey, wiry hair, and a wicked sense of humour. 
In fact, he was such a comedian that the whole group would burst into guffaws of laughter at his wit and good humour. He had a gift of being able to guide people into finding empathy, even in the most emotionally charged and hate-filled scenarios. Sometimes he would illustrate his points with stories from the past. I listened with attention when he chose as one of his illustrations the long-standing conflict between Israel and Palestine. I thought, well, if someone can find genuine empathy in a situation like that, that is pretty cool. Rosenberg had been invited to teach nonviolent communication in a public meeting in a Palestinian refugee camp in Bethlehem. Because he was an American and had a name like Rosenberg, this was not an easy assignment. Only the day before, Rosenberg had noticed some spent tear gas canisters in the refugee camp, with Made in the USA clearly marked on them. He knew that the refugees were angry with the US for siding with Israel and supplying Israel with tear gas and other weapons of control or destruction. When Rosenberg walked into the makeshift meeting room, he saw 170 glowering, murmuring men. You murderer, one of them shouted. Assassin, another yelled. Child killer. This was not going to be an easy audience. Rosenberg, remembering the tear gas canisters, spoke to the man who had first called him a murderer. Sir, are you feeling upset because you would like my government to act in a different way? That's right, the man said. We don't need tear gas. We don't need your bombs. What we need is schools, health clinics, housing. We need to be able to take care of our children. Sir, it sounds like you're feeling desperate for the world to know the kind of situation you're living in. Damn right. My children go to a school with no books, not a single book. My son is sick. He plays in open sewage because there is nowhere for him to play. Have you ever seen kids playing in open sewers? Rosenberg responded. It sounds like you want for your children to have what any parent would want for their children. At the end of the presentation, the Palestinian man who had called Rosenberg a murderer invited him to have Ramadan dinner with his family. This snippet of a much longer conversation demonstrates one man's mastery in handling another's anger. First, Rosenberg does not express any angry or fearful reaction to being called a murderer. Secondly, though it is not explicit in this condensed version of the conversation, he is able to defuse any emotional reaction he might have had which is why he is open and can show genuine empathy to the Palestinian man. And thirdly, he discovers the need behind the Palestinian man's anger. In doing this, Rosenberg takes the conversation from divisive anger into the arena of universal needs, what any parent would want for their children. That which divides is transported to the arena of that which unites. The following exercise is based on Marshall Rosenberg's method of nonviolent communication. Exercise. Find empathy by understanding why the other is angry. 1. Recognize that the other person's anger, just like your own, is nearly always created by an unmet need or value. 2. State the feeling that you observe in the other. 
If the feeling you observe is something that might be viewed in a negative light, something like, for instance, anger or jealousy, you can soften this by using more easily acceptable words like annoyed or upset. People feel seen and heard when you demonstrate that you've noticed what they feel, even if they need to correct your guess at this feeling. No, I'm not feeling annoyed so much. I'm feeling more unhappy. If you don't quite capture the feeling as the other experiences it, your guess at their feeling still demonstrates your care. 3. Link the feeling that you have observed, or that they have named, to an underlying need value they hold that is not being met. Ask yourself, what is this person's human need or value that is not being met? Make your best guess at this, even if you feel the other person is not themselves aware that this is a problem for them. Then link this need value to the feeling you have identified. Put your two linked guesses in the form of a question. For example, are you upset because you would like peacefulness and harmony? Here's a list. It's the same as in the last chapter of some universal human needs or values. Authenticity, choice, clarity, community, compassion, competence, courage, ease, effectiveness, equality, harmony, inclusion, independence, integrity, joy, kindness, order, peacefulness, respect, safety, security, tolerance, trust, truthfulness. 4. Recognize that you too probably have the same needed values. And 5. Watch the anger cycle diminish as you experience your commonality with the other. In a personal relationship, you're likely to find that you're able to discuss your guess of the other's feeling and need or value fairly easily. For example, after an argument of harsh words and hurt, you might say, are you feeling upset because you would like to experience kindness? This question is so disarming. In asking a question like this, you do not need to be exactly right. With the question, you are creating an opening. You're switching from battle mode into the language of universal needs and values. Everyone wants to experience kindness. And if the other person is a public figure, or a public group, members of a political party for example, your guess, made internally for your own benefit, can still be very useful in reducing your own pain and judgment. Even attempting to guess the need behind another's anger tends to diminish your own judgmental or angry response. This is because you are moving from divisiveness, us versus them, anger with the enemy, to unity, the wishes and needs that are universally valued. Democrats and Republicans often judge each other for voting for the other side with irrational blanket put-downs, irrational because the blanket casts all members of the other camp as the same, not taking into account that the reasons for voting are complex and may be different in different voters. 
perhaps an important need of a particular man who voted Republican is for fairness and security. For example, to feel that he can properly support his family after 40 years in which wages for most of the 99% have not increased in real terms. Perhaps an important need for a particular woman who voted Democrat is for fairness and equality. For example, that women receive equal pay to men for equal work. In making the other into a person, it's easier not to be hurt by labels hurled with pain like Republicans are a bunch of racists or Democrats are a bunch of self-righteous idiots. Dropping the labels and counter-labels, we see people like you and me who share the same basic human attributes, like, for instance, caring about family, wishing to be appreciated, loving to laugh, enjoying good food, wanting to be heard. We see that they, like us, share the same desire for trust, for warmth, for having fun, for making a contribution, for self-expression, for purpose, for safety, for independence, and for respect. And in recognizing our commonality, we feel so much better. The more we experience our common ground, the more we find that enmity evaporates, and the better we become at reaching out to those with different views. Thank you for listening to Superpower Curiosity with Dr. Richard Gillette. Episode 13 is dropping in two weeks, so make sure you're subscribed to hear Richard speak on deciding what is within your own power. Want to get in touch? Send an email or voice memo to superpowercuriosity at gmail.com. Till next time, stay curious. Stay curious.